Good morning, everyone. This is NPR News, and I'm Angela Davis. When the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, schools went into lockdown. For more than a year, education as we knew it was upended. Millions of kids across the country were sent home to do school online, which not only made learning almost impossible, but disrupted support services and major developmental milestones. It was clear even then that this was not a good way to do school, and test scores from this fall bear that out. The majority of Minnesota students are now below state proficiency standards in math, and almost half lag in reading. It's a dismal picture, I know. The question facing districts and and educators now, and even families today, is what to do about it. And is catching kids up even the right frame for what we're facing? That's the topic of today's conversation, our special in-focus discussion today, because the situation does not have to continue to be dismal, but it's going to take some time. With me is an elite panel of experts, education experts, people who are passionate about children, about learning, and about education. Let's introduce them. We have with us Josh Crossan. Josh is the executive director of Ed Allies, an organization that works to ensure that all Minnesota students, especially those most underserved, have access to a great education. Welcome to the program, Josh. Thank you so much, Angela. Great to be here. Nice to meet you. We also have with us Rachel Pearson. Rachel is a parent advocate and trainer at the Pacer Center. Now, that's a nonprofit that champions youth with disabilities and their families. Glad to have you here, Rachel. It's great to be here. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Brenda Caselius. Brenda has spent three decades as an educator, most recently as the superintendent of Boston Public Schools, and before that as Minnesota's commissioner of education. She has a wealth of experience as both a teacher and administrator in Minnesota schools. Welcome, Brenda. Good to see you. Thank you, Angela. Glad to be here. So let's uh, set the scene by talking just a few minutes about what we do know the few numbers that we do have, and as I'm sure we'll talk about throughout the hour, part of the, the problem with this, 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 this conundrum with COVID-19 uh, learning loss is that we don't even have the data right now, not mm-hmm. yet, to really quantify exactly what we're dealing with. Is that the case? Is that what you found, Josh? Well, we ha- yeah, we have some data. I mean, we have the data that's coming from the national assessments. We have data that's coming trickling in from the state assessments, the MCAs. Um, and what we've seen is a steady reduction in math and reading even before pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pandemic happened. Um, we've seen that COVID has exacerbated those disparities and uh, students of color, students with disabilities, low-income learners, uh, English language learners were hit particularly hard. Um, and when looking at the national numbers, Minnesota was hit particularly hard compared to the rest of the states. Mm. And Rachel, have you found that to be the case too? Is because it's still relatively recent, it's kind of hard to know what we're dealing with. Yes. And anecdotally, we hear parents uh, tell us uh, every day about the loss that their students with disabilities uh, experienced during the pandemic. And parents had a bird's eye view because education moved into the home setting. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the loss is tangible and palpable. Um, We don't have hardcore numbers yet to describe it, though. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Caselius, is that what you've seen too? Because it's still so recent, it's hard to be able to really, you know, put put exact uh, numbers on it. Yeah, even though the numbers aren't exact, you know, we have really good information on chronic attendance issues. Mm. We have issues around mental health, 
Um, and, you know, the, the difficulty that we are seeing is very real. Families are telling us, teachers are telling us, and, um, but the even outside, too. and the, the students. children themselves, and they're so aware now. Our children are just absolutely amazing. And so they know, and they're asking, asking for help with their own sense of agency around advocating for their peers and for themselves as well. What I think is most striking is the intersectionality of the data of our students who are special ed, our students of color, students of poverty, students who are EL, and all of those barriers in front of them in terms of getting a great education. So we can't just look at, you know, one data point for mm-hmm. our kids. We have to be looking at all the ways in which they are struggling, um, and particularly our most vulnerable kids, and that's where we should place all of our effort. So here's what we do now. Uh, a report that's often known as the nation's report card came out in October. Nationally, math scores dropped seven points, and that's the first ever decline since that test began in the early 1970s. Reading scores dropped five points, the largest decline in 30 years. And the picture here in Minnesota, not quite as grim, but as I said in the introduction, the majority of Minnesota students are now behind in math and only about half are now proficient in reading. And so, Josh, uh, Mm -hmm. what do you hear in those test scores? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and when you look at fourth grade reading, especially in Minnesota, we've, for the first time, Mm -hmm. dropped below the national average for all students in reading uh, for for fourth grade. Say that again. So for fourth grade reading, uh, according to the NAEP scores, we are now below the national average for the first time in Minnesota, um, which, again, it points to the, the, the point that uh, all states were hit by the pandemic, but not all states were hit equally and not all students were hit equally. So in Minnesota, especially, and for those kids that have uh, the needs that we need to address immediately, the state and those students were hit particularly hard in this country. Now, let's go even further. There were declines among almost all income levels and races, but as we've mentioned, both the, with low-income and minority students, they fared the worst, mm-hmm. um, which is no surprise to anybody aware of the systemic um, inequities that already existed in the educational system. Uh, researchers at Harvard and Stanford universities examined scores from state and national assessments and found that in the Twin Cities, Black and Latino students mm-hmm. suffered the most dramatic slide backwards. Uh, Brenda, tell us more about um, understanding that. Well, poverty, we know, has always been predictable for student success, which it should not be. What it means is that we did not do a good enough job of scaffolding the kind of supports that families really needed during this time of the pandemic, and that's why the slide was so big. Um, In Boston, one of the things we did was put in place social workers, counselors, nurses, psychologists, and family liaisons who are bilingual. Those folks worked as a team, and we didn't see as much of a slide as the rest of the state. Um, we did see them go back backward. Um, there is unfinished learning there, but it wasn't as great. Where I think you know the state now has an opportunity with $17.6 billion to put in place these kinds of supports that sometimes can meet the challenge that comes with um, children who have conditions of poverty and uh, provide those extra scaffolding and support systems as well, both in school and out of school in terms of housing support, social su- social um, supports and uh, supports for uh, job security and health care for, for our children and their families. Now, was remote learning and distance learning and not having the tools needed to do that for many families, was that a big part of why we saw that huge slide? 
Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, you know, we were trying to invent something that we had never done before. I mean, there were right. there were teachers who really didn't know how to use computers even. And then there were communication problems with families who, in Boston, for instance, 50% of our students speak a language other than English at home. So how are the teachers going to communicate with families then about what the lessons ought to be at home? So we purchased a program called Talking Points that helped uh, through text so that um, when you speak in English, it goes over in Spanish and then they could um, understand and they could speak Spanish back and then the teachers could read it in English. That was uh, very helpful. And just the fam- the family liaisons really helped to to support. So it's, it's um, you know, trying to be in a remote environment for everybody was brand new, especially for our families. But let me just thank our families because we couldn't have done it without them. Um, but I think, you know, really being able to embrace families and um, work on those things together. We saw particularly at the early grades was really tough. And then at the high school level. Mm-hmm. And yes, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to, one thing to add to that, just to put numbers to that. At the start of the pandemic, about 17% of Minnesotans did not have access to a computer or internet. Um, so 17% of students who, uh, during the start of the pandemic, just did not have access to an education. Right. Uh, and that, that was a huge slide, especially in greater and rural Minnesota, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, service is choppy um, mm-hmm. when you're, when you're in you certain areas, right. even if you have the equipment. Uh, and, and one other thing I would just like to, to just add is um, uh, poverty and, and, and uh, expressed needs based on income is absolutely something that we need to be addressing. I would also just add that um, when thinking about race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. students of color in particular, we have to think about um, uh, addressing cultural needs as well, um, that they're not the same or they're, they're, we shouldn't conflate the two, um, but we should be thinking about how we equitably approach this based on income as well as, as, as race. Um, homeless white students, for example, um, are outpacing all black students and Hispanic students in the state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So to say that again, mm-hmm. If you're black or Hispanic, um, you, a student, you're, you're, you're probably reading um, at lower proficiency than homeless white students in the state. That's not to say that homeless white students don't need certain um, um, attention or things. It's just to say that we have to think about these communities uh, as, as, as overlapping intersectional communities, but not the same communities. Right. They have different challenges. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, could, oh, I go ahead, just, I'm so sorry. Just as far as... Another layer of access for students with disabilities that we heard from parents across the state where school districts were able to successfully resolve the access issues in terms of uh, reliable internet signal and getting a one-to-one personal device into the hands of, mm-hmm. of students and getting any uh, any uh, IT literacy um, available to the parents and the family, even when those issues were resolved, um, for students with disabilities, access uh, was a matter of just it, instruction losing all meaning when it was communicated to them and provided to them remotely. They, they, they could not access it because it, it didn't work for them. They, they couldn't make progress with it. It didn't make sense to them. So there was this additional layer of access issues for students with disabilities in that regard. And we heard that reported by parents across the state and as well as in the metro area. It was particularly difficult for our special needs students. Um, I want to take a moment, uh, Rachel, with with disabilities, define this for me. Uh, So students with learning disabilities, describe some of the scenarios that we're talking about when we talk about students with disabilities. 
It's a wide array. (laughs) There are so many. This won't be totally representative, but for example, um, for uh, students with... um, with learning dis- disabilities to to uh, to run with that, uh, who use particular forms of assistive technology mm-hmm. in the classroom, it, that was a, 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 getting that them access to that assistive technology on top of access to the assistive technology just to connect to their classroom mm-hmm. was difficult. Um, uh, for students, if we take another example of, uh, of students with. Um, uh, disabilities that were uh, behavioral, mm-hmm. who relied on, say, though the support of a paraprofessional mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to participate successfully in a classroom. Well, school districts did not have the capacity to send one-to-one paraprofessionals or shared paraprofessionals home. Not enough people, right, or right? time to do. Mm-hmm. And and so and, and parents are not we're, we're not trained uh, educators uh, or educational assistants, so. Uh, Parents were attempting to fulfill that role if they were available in the home. Um, I, I, I spoke to one parent who engineered a solution that was so complex um, because her the, her daughter needed relied on the support of a one-to-one paraprofessional to engage in the classroom. And so since the para couldn't be at home, the para was available in a separate classroom remotely connected to the to her daughter um, but then they couldn't communicate unless that communication was it was heard and and it was an interruption to everyone in the virtual classroom in a, in, a, in an in-person classroom it wouldn't have been an, an interruption at all but in a virtual classroom the game completely changed so the solution they engineered was to provide this young student with two devices so that she could connect on one device with her para and then she could connect with her clear, her classroom on another device. She could get redirection from her para without any disruption to her general education classroom or instruction. And at the same time, she could reach out and get help from her paraprofessional when she needed it without by muting her her voice in the in the general education classroom. That was an extraordinary solution. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And those were very few and far between right. because of the work involved. And Brenda, you wanted to say more about students yeah, with disabilities. It was heart-wrenching as a superintendent to not be able to serve our special needs students, particularly our students with complex needs who had PT, which is physical therapy, and we knew that students were regressing in their uh, abilities, um, or occupational therapy, or uh, social work services, or behavioral services, and I literally would be in Zoom calls with parents who were sobbing because they just were at their breaking point, um, because they were watching their children regress, Mm. and we could not deploy enough services to, to... because the complex needs were so great that they had multiple service providers in the school for their uh, individual education plans, and we could not find a way to coordinate that at scale for all of our students. It was extremely frustrating, so we designed a a committee with parents, our union, teacher leaders, and um, our um, administrators and students to try to figure out how can we get our highest need priority kids back to school as soon as possible so that they then could get that coordinated service because it was the coordination of all of the services that children get, just like I talked about the intersectionality of the of the differences uh, that students uh, have and the need the need. Sounds profile. like a, a full time job for a parent. 
Well, for for some for, yeah, for our parents, it was right. it's, it was excruciating um, and and very difficult for our families. And Josh, anything you wanted to add about what we have seen with with students with learning disabilities and other disabilities? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're we're also seeing is is just a, a mental health crisis in our yeah. schools as well. I mean, I, I talking to 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 parents, to educators, to students, mental health needs and concerns are being highlighted, which aren't necessarily being captured by our, um, our, our IEPs or our, our special education services. It's bringing up new issues around COVID recovery that, that mm-hmm. we need to address immediately. And uh, I have in my notes here that um, when we look at recovery services for kids with special needs, in Minnesota, there was a law passed in the summer of 2021 that mandated schools uh, help families of students with an existing IEP, the Independent Education Plan, um, come up with a path forward. So how, how did that that play out, Rachel? So it, it, it played out with a lot of, I'd say, angst and tribulation. I mean, there were some, uh, it was a very important law and there uh, a lot of good came from it. But it was it was very difficult, too, uh, in its implementation. To actually facilitate Absolutely. It, right? I mean, for parents, uh, parents who had this clear understanding and a daily vision of how their students were harmed, uh, how their children with disabilities were harmed, uh, by re- remote learning and 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 that distance learning instruction, they had to go into go through an eligibility determination process. Mm. They had to learn the, all of the vocabulary around that eligibility determination process. They had to uh, pre- present evidence. Mm-hmm. They had to. It wasn't enough to say, "Yes, my child was harmed." By distance learning, they had to weigh it, measure it, demonstrate it, find the evidence. They had to prove it. That was mm-hmm. uh, some parents simply did not have the heart or the stamina for that. Mm-hmm. And on the you know on the other side of the table, for teachers, for special education teachers, for related services providers like speech language pathologists and OTs. Uh, it, they had to confront the question. These people who had put their bodies on the line to educate kids and didn't walk away and basically became every community's frontline defense for protecting children against the virus. They had to face a conversation about whether all the, the work that they had done wasn't enough mm-hmm. and didn't support a child with a disability mm-hmm. to make expected progress. That was such a hard conversation to face. I, I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Last week, NPR's community engagement team hosted a story circle for mm. educators, students, and parents in Minnesota to share their experience with COVID learning loss. And one striking point was made by Suki Mozinter, mm. who teaches education at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She said, in all the talk about learning loss, we often forget about what students did learn. So let's listen. What What did kids learn during the pandemic, right? So they learned that, um, that everything can completely fall apart. Um, they learned that they can lose, um, the people who care for them, right? That those people can become, you know, very, very ill suddenly and, and die without having, you know, some of the rituals and ways that we process that available to them. So they learned that that's a possibility. Um, they learned that being together can be unsafe um, to the point where we had to stay away from each other. Um, and they they learned that being alone 
can be really awful and really lonely. Um, and so I think when we talk about learning loss, I think it shifts away from what our kids have learned and what we need to then kind of teach them so that they can cope with this new learning. It's a lot there. I take a, take a breath there, but right. as you hear that, um, what comes to mind, Josh? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it displays the complexity of the issue, right? We're talking about academic learning, learning loss, and we're talking about the realities of students and parents, right? We knew that to keep kids safe, we had to, to, to create environments where all people were safe. It was really bad. It, it resulted in, in a slide. Um, it was also necessary, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a hard decision that our policymakers had to make. Um, and, and, uh, and kids learned from that. They, they, they slid. There was also a lot of trauma. Um, in, that, in that clip, we heard um, experiences of real trauma that kids, are fi- that kids faced and, and supports that aren't necessarily being given to students um, in response to that trauma. We also saw trauma from from educators, right, and families, and that trauma is also uh, communicated and passed down to children. Um, And so in order for our our community to actually rebound, we need to be addressing, uh, I said it already, we need to be addressing the mental health needs and and, and concerns of our our students and the supports around them. We still need to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, heal. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on what kids uh, did observe and learn, Rachel? Oh, I, I think maybe that they, you know what, what works for them works for them. It might not work for any of the other classmates, but it works for them. You know, the, it, it, kids uh, found ways with support from their parents and their families and their, their teachers uh, to uh, to get through. Um, and there were a lot of, of, of kids who didn't have support or don't have support now. Right. Brenda, what are your thoughts when you, we think about what did they witness and see and learn? You know, I think about the high school students that I met with quite regularly, almost weekly at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And more and more as the days went on, they would shut off their screens. And so the social isolation was very real for our high school kids. And it became a very sad situation. They actually came to me in December and asked to set up a hotline for suicide prevention, which we did. Um, And then we sent, um, it was their idea to set up online counseling, which we did. Um, What do you mean they would shut off their screen? So there would be in a- No video. Class and they would turn the camera Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. And that was kind of a little controversy that went on nationally. Like, do you allow the kids to turn off their videos or not turn off their videos? Are they, um, are they really attending if their video is not on? And so there were some school districts who would, you know, set policy that you had to have your videos on. And some of our kids were very private about their backgrounds and some had very large families and they were living in poverty conditions and they were, they didn't want everyone seeing what was going on in their or family. sounds their in the home, home they can't right? control. And so they would want to turn that off or they'd have to make, um, you know, um, apologies and say, look, my, ki- you know, my little brothers and sisters in the background are arguing or mom would be, you know, th- yeah. we were seeing right. the whole idea that we were in people's homes now mm-hmm. and in their private spaces mm-hmm. um, on top of all the trauma and social isolation, um, 
is just quite extraordinary. And to think that we're just going to move on from that, I think, is not realistic. I think we have to address that. We need more counseling and supports to be able to provide those kinds of um, networks for families so that we can get through this trauma together. And I don't think it's going to be quick. I think it's going to take time. Um, That really moves us into the next phase of our discussion. But first, if you're just joining us, you're listening to a special in-focus discussion about COVID learning loss. We're talking about what uh, the disappointing test scores reveal and what they don't show us and tell us. We're talking about teachers and students and and how they are coping with with years of disrupted schooling. And we're talking about how to address the deep disparities between deep disparities that the pandemic highlighted in our educational system. My guests again. I'd like to reintroduce you. We're talking with Josh Crossan, who's the executive director of Ed Allies, as well as Rachel Pearson, a parent advocate and trainer at the Pacer Center, which is a nonprofit that works with kids who have special needs, and Brenda Caselius, former teacher, administrator, and former education commissioner for the state of Minnesota. So I mentioned earlier that, that many experts in the field say that to truly address COVID learning loss, we have to first address the teacher shortage. So Brenda, first I want to ask you about teacher shortage. Hmm. Uh, what did you see in Boston with teacher shortage and how did it impact you as a superintendent? Well, I think this is the number one struggle we have. You know, we're going to be held accountable for test scores and student achievement, which is our core business, is educating children. But you can't do that if you don't have a caring and competent teacher in every single classroom. And so, you know, I raised the alarm very early in January and wrote in the Washington Post that we need a Marshall Plan. We need an all-out plan of the federal government, state government, local um, authorities to pull together and really tackle this teacher shortage. It's multifaceted and quite complex, like Josh had said, Um, you know, all the way from teachers not coming into the field because of the perceptions of it's a very difficult job um, and it's, you know, low pay. And uh, the the working conditions in terms of teachers' realities are very very challenged. It's a very it's a very difficult position. And you know, I think that now we have to figure out how do we how do we get after that. You know, how do we recruit more teachers into the field? And it's going to be there's going to have to be a lot of effort around recruitment, retention, prep programs, um, alternative licensure programs. Minnesota uh, several years ago passed the tiered licensing to allow for teachers to have kind of a, a tiered system to get into entry-level positions and then grow in the teaching and become mm-hmm. a master teacher. We need more innovation around that. And then we need more diverse teachers. We need teachers who understand the cultural competence of the students that we actually serve in public schools and be able to um, work with students with dis- multiple uh, disabilities and different challenges that come. And so I'm calling for all of us to put our heads together, significantly fund this effort at the, uh, at the state level here in Minnesota. We have the opportunity now, and now is the time because we are going to continue to have a teacher shortage because the mm-hmm. workforce now outside can pay teachers more. Um, it, it pay, you know, for the level of their education and um, ex- experience than what we're doing in the public school. So there's more competition now as well. Right. Josh, you're nodding your head a lot. <laughs> Talk about teacher shortage. <laughs> a couple of questions here. First, how do you define teacher shortage? Yeah, that's like, a really like, good question. Like who gets to say what a shortage is or not within a school building? That's a very good question. So in the state of Minnesota, we allow Pelsby, our, our licensing agencies, to define what a shortage is. 
um, and how they've decided to define a shortage is any teacher currently in the classroom teaching in that entry-level teaching position. Not how many uh, spots went unfilled or um, how many children are in a classroom, but how many current teachers are in a classroom with that specific license. So um, I, I'm seeing Give me an example. Yeah, yeah so, an example. So, so it would be, um, of all the people on the panel, this is, this is not a good radio example, okay. but of all the people <laughs> on the panel, a shortage is defined as anyone on the panel with glasses on. There are okay. two people of the four who are here with glasses. If, if you both leave, we okay. no longer have a shortage on this panel. Uh, even, <laughs> even though the, the need isn't addressed, we're counting teachers who are currently in the classroom, who are in front of our students, uh, who are doing well by, by uh, many measures, we're calling them a shortage. We're calling them a deficit. And, and the real kicker is 25% of these, these teachers are teachers of color. Um, so mm. 25% of the teachers that we're considering a deficit in the classroom, a shortage in Minnesota, are, are teachers of color here in the state. Um, so first, I think the first step we need to do is measure, accurately measure where what our shortage looks like mm-hmm. in every district. Um, we were really close with this legislative session to to have a really good measurement. Um, you know, Ed Allies worked really closely with our statewide teachers union, Education Minnesota, to figure out what a, def- a good definition of a teacher shortage is so we can focus our resources on, on, on addressing the shortage then. And then we need to do something about it, right? We need to recruit uh, educators. We need to retain the teachers that we have and elevate those teachers that are currently in the classroom. And then we need to assess our progress, right? There, so not everything that passes out of the legislature is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to make sure that, uh, that um, the the money, the investment, the policy is actually doing what it is intended to do. And if it's not, we need to change course and then do again, right? So measure, do, assess, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. I've done talk shows about uh, the teacher shortage, but also particularly about the shortage of teachers of color. And I just Mm -hmm. read a story about an attempt to recruit more teachers of color to Minnesota, but it, it's not been very effective. What are you seeing there? Right. So, yeah. So, Minnesota invested $400,000 in a program called uh, Come Teach in Minnesota. Um, the nice I- name. Come Teach in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty clear. It's very clear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very direct. Um, it's yeah, not just a clever name. It's actually what they want to do. Um, so, we, we said, teachers of color, come to the state of Minnesota. We have the widest teaching cohort. We're actually beat out by North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin. So, we're the fifth widest teaching cohort in the nation. Meaning that... That most, that many students will go all the way through 12th grade and never have a teacher of color. Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. And by pure osmosis, if we just recruit from other states, we'll have more teachers of color coming in. Mm-hmm. And so, and so we uh, said $400,000, it'll go out in bonuses. If you come to the state of Minnesota as a teacher of color, we will give you a bonus. Um, we, uh, we gave $70,000 of that money to the Department of Education to implement that. Um, we attracted, we got six people to move to the state of Minnesota but they didn't qualify based on the terms of the policy um, because they were coming in at that entry-level license. They were coming in as a tier two license teacher, which we said we only want a higher level license of teachers coming into the state. And so those six people who moved their families to Minnesota did not receive that bonus uh, to the Come Teach in Minnesota, which is why... and I. I would say failure is part of success, yeah, right? That's a we, good point. It was a it was a well intentioned program. We supported the program at Ed Allies. It didn't work as intended. We got to go back to the legislature and fix it so it's implemented well. And those six people are they? Did they? They're, 
day, but they didn't get what they were promised. So they have to get a higher level license within two years in order to get their bonus. So they still can be eligible for it, but uh, they didn't get the, the immediate bonus. Rachel, let's talk about the, the paraprofessional shortage. Yes. Because schools oh, have I'm so many glad. more adults. Yes. <laughs> paraprofessional shortage, um, which is you know separate from having um, separate from being a licensed teacher. What are we seeing there? Yes. Um, a massive paraprofessional shortage is what uh, we're hearing reports of from parents and school districts across the state. And in, and that can mean, for example, when a, a building had 11 paraprofessionals uh, to serve students with disabilities last school year, and this school year they have three. Mm-hmm. Um, for some students with disabilities who rely on a paraprofessional, for example, to successfully engage in a general education classroom. That could mean that an inclusion opportunity is lost and that the amount of time that a student with that student with disability is spending in the general education classroom is reduced. And so they're in a more restrictive environment and it is not because of their disability related needs. It's because of the lack of the paraprofessional support that they rely on to be successful. That that that's just tremendously, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hurtful for students with disabilities. There are uh, bus driver shortages mm-hmm. across the state, also, um, and uh, that can mean I, uh, that uh, school districts are faced with sending bus drivers out on early routes and late routes, and so that could mean that students with disabilities are going home early and missing part of their last class at school which is a violation of their right to a free and appropriate public education. And school districts are struggling mightily with this issue. But that's another translation Mm -hmm. of that. Um, Just the the lack of paraprofessional support in, say, a um, a high school program in a – uh, an 18 to 21 transition services program can mean less access, reduced access for students with disabilities to get out into their community, into employment, uh, integrated employment-based settings to learn those employment readiness skills and to learn independent living skills like just traveling in the community and accessing their, their so community. So we can't move forward without these supports. We cannot move forward without addressing the situation. Okay, more uh, voices I want to bring in the conversation. Last week's Story Circle also had a group of students who shared candidly about their experiences. And we have a short montage of some of their thoughts about trying to do school online during the pandemic. You're going to hear from Kaya Deer and Jacob Stanek, both who were in high school when COVID broke out. Listen. I was a junior going into like the COVID era, I guess. And I don't know. I, I wasn't really doing much of my schoolwork. I was just letting it build up. Cause I was like, Oh, it's online. I can just do it whenever. Right. And so I didn't graduate the year I was supposed to. Especially during the pandemic, there was a lot of lack of motivation just to get things done. And I think what the biggest thing is like with those test scores is it was more or less because these kids aren't motivated. They're not doing as much, so they're not learning as much. And more, more or less just like they're just not caring about it. And because of that, in result, they're also just not going to care about the tests. How does that, um, how does that strike you? We, we hear about motivation and maybe not, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just hard. You just hear the, the, 
What's the word for it? Just the heavy. lack of what? It was just heavy. It's just heavy, yeah. Heavy. But I can understand Can you imagine like, that on a yeah. child who's 15, 16, right. 17? Yeah. You know, when this is supposed to be the time that they're, you know, seniors. It, you know, we were so worried about our seniors. Yeah, mm-hmm. doing all of these things in high school. They Not just the lack of uh, getting your education or doing your homework. They then d- couldn't do their extracurricular activities. They couldn't be on athletic clubs. Mm-hmm. They've missed scholarships that they could have gotten. Right. Um, you know, many of them didn't apply to college the, that next year. Um, you know, just the the devastating effects that this had on on our young people is just like I said before, it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people really get it. So I'm here trying to explain, you know, for our kids how very hard this is and that the need is so great. And anything that we can do, they should be top of mind for every single adult right now because they are hurting and we have got to wrap our arms around them. We cannot continue to delay and delay and delay. It has to get done this year. It and, has to get done. And just because we open the doors back up and they're able to take their seats again, again, where's That's the not, healing, yeah. the acknowledgement, yeah. um, the compassion in this, Josh? Yeah. I mean, I was almost put to tears by, by mm-hmm. hearing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it, – it's, it's not only heavy, but it's, it's, it's also a sense of hopelessness from – I could hear the sense of hopelessness from their parents, from mm-hmm. their, their support community. Um, no one has ever gone through anything like this. So ha- providing those supports and trying to figure out what works is, is, is really, really tough. Um, and, and I think what the most important lesson in that clip especially is, is we need to listen to students and provide <laughs> yes. them as, provide them exactly what they need and what they're, and what they're asking for. Cause not necessarily what and they talk need. to them, ask and them, talk to them yeah. and yes. ask them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I feel that in education, especially <laughs> surprise, I, I had no clue going into education that it was going to be this political or this mm-hmm. adult focused or adult centric. Um, it is, I, for, for folks mm-hmm. who aren't in the education space, it is very political. It is very adult focused. Um, and, and we need to stop that. We need mm-hmm. to think about com- coming together and thinking about exactly what students need, ask them what they need and provide as many supports as possible. This is our, this is our mobilization moment. Absolutely. Rachel, those voices, does this really highlight um, this need for a renewed focus on social and emotional skills? Yes. Uh, yes. It, and I, but I think, it, I, I think it, Josh, you hit the nail on the head. It's about listening to student voices and putting them at the center and listening to parent voices and putting parent voices at the center. We heard every day of the pandemic from parents across the state. I, I, I just want the school district to listen to me. I just need them to hear my story and and then they'll understand and then we can move forward. And they're still saying that today. Um, I think that in moments of crisis, I think we kind of tend to turn away from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, school districts are trying mightily and pen- have been working uh, mightily throughout the pandemic, throughout the staff shortage that they're confronting this year to fix things the best way that they know how. Um, but I think they've been hesitant to invite parents into the conversation to start there, to say, tell us, what, what, what are the most urgent needs? We can't fix everything all at once. That is impossible. And parents of students with disabilities are experts in, uh, in understanding uh, uh, the compromise and in f- figuring out what their child needs right now, today, mm-hmm. this week, 
this year and pouring all their energy into that. I, I was just, I was in a meeting. I, I was pulled into a meeting, if it's okay if I tell Please. a story that kind of fleshes this out. So a parent called me, this is the parent um, of a young man with uh, a com- a complex disabilities, an intellectual disability. He communicates uh, some verbally, some with sign language, some with an augmentative alternative communication device. Really significant sensory regulation needs, really significant um, behavioral regulation needs. And uh, he was in crisis. Uh, he At the beginning of the school year, he started um, to get physically aggressive with um, with kids at school, with teachers at school. This was not happening at home, and this had not happened before. And so the parent called and said she had just received an IEP proposal, and they were going to pull him from being included in breakfast, mm-hmm. lunch, and PE to keep him safe, to keep his mm-hmm. peers safe, to keep his teachers safe, until they could figure this out. And the parent was in agreement to prioritize safety, but what she disagreed with strongly was that there was no plan in this IEP proposal to get him back. Mm. How do we get him back? And then she also mentioned while we were talking that he's coming home early from school this year. He's coming home significantly early, like he's missing Missing over half of his last class of the school day. And there's no explanation for this for the school district. And there was nothing in the IEP proposal that explained it. So we went to a meeting. And at this meeting, the parents said, why is my son coming home from school early? And the district special education director looked at her and said, we don't have enough bus drivers right now. We are sending some of our kids home early on an early run, and then the bus driver comes back, and then we're sending our next kids home later. And we can't solve it. We're trying, but we haven't figured out a solution yet. And the tension in that room was absolutely palpable. Mm-hmm. And the parent looked at the special education director and said, I understand. I understand that you right now are facing a school bus driver crisis. And I trust you to fix that as soon as you possibly can. I trust you to do that. Right now, my son's most urgent crisis is that he's missing breakfast and lunch and pee with his peers. And I want this IEP team to pour all of our energy into fixing that crisis for him because he needs to get back to lunch and breakfast and PE with his peers. But and what about the communication? Why didn't they, they never informed her of that? They because maybe never there informed, was an alternative. And I think it's this shying away because we're seeing parents are reporting this. Um, huh. Every day, well, I found out because I my child reported something to me, or I went to school to drop off his lunch or her lunch or their lunch, and discovered I something. discovered something, or I talked right. to a teacher about something else. I had a question, and I got this information. Aren't I supposed to know? Yes, parents are supposed to know, but I think that we have to get school districts and parents have to get over this fear, right? And do and talk to each other. Right. I want to make sure we have more student voices I want to get in here before our time is up. Um, here's another uh, part of our story circle, uh, this time um, from Jacob and another student, E. Meyer. Now, their reflections represent two different takeaways from students um, that they have when it comes to learning during the pandemic. So listen to this. Biggest thing, I think, just for us was honestly, and speaking mainly for kids in our grade after COVID hit, was we wanted to honestly go back into the classroom and go back to the 
traditional way of learning because of the social aspects that came with being in a classroom and being around students. Um, with a lot of uh, students, especially in my grade, because we didn't, we couldn't drive yet. And all we could do is talk through Snapchat, social media, texting. Um, the biggest thing was we just wanted to be back in the building and we didn't really want to adapt into this new learning style or be online. I like the idea of just kind of being able to learn more independently. Um, something that comes to mind is definitely with writing, and this may just be as I've grown up too, but I consider myself a really strong writer. So it's had been kind of nice to not be like babysat through papers and assignments and stuff that I knew how to do. And kind of hopping on, like getting your assignment and hopping off of Zoom was kind of nice. Brenda, what do you think about that? Just the thought of integrating more of what students are saying into the conversations the adults are having about what should happen. Well, we tried to um, really make sure that we were listening to our students when I was in Boston and also um, ensuring that they were part of any policy that we passed. So we'd have them on our committees when we were passing policies. We'd have two students on there. So always tried to make sure that we were doing that with our Boston Student Advisory Council. But I know that that doesn't always happen at every single school or every single classroom level. And so anything we can do to make sure that we're inclusive of student voice is always going to be very powerful and help them grow in their own advocacy and agency. So that's going to be useful. What I really was thinking about when I was reflecting on what Jacob was saying is that they wanted to get back in the classrooms, but what we found is that they were still masked And when they were masked, that still wasn't fully being in the classroom because they couldn't see everybody's emotion Mm -hmm. and expressions. And so once we took the masks off, it was night and day. Um, and so students would talk about how it felt to be masked in the in the space and then how it felt when they were unmasked. And some mm-hmm. students felt really safe being unmasked and some students still wear their masks and still felt unsafe being masked. And so trying to deal with the dynamics in the classroom of students who wanted everyone masked and, and other students who wanted them unmasked and then just kind of that whole emotional piece of like I can see Rachel's expressions and when she smiles and we connect, yeah. you know, you don't, you, as everything was in the eyes and sometimes you didn't, you didn't get that same kind of feedback and that social interaction. So I think for some of our students, it was a little bit of a letdown when they got back into the classroom because they still couldn't see their friends behind the mask. Yes, Josh. Yeah, that's great. I think I think what those clips too also tell us. I mean, those were two very different needs, right? Yeah. Jacob was like, "I need to be back in the classroom. I need to be back with my community." Um, I can't. I forgot the e, e. Meyer. E. Meyer. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she, they said, um, "I need I need alone time. I need to focus on on my work as an individual." I am an extreme extrovert with ADHD. Being home during the pandemic did not work well for me. And I know introverts in my family who are like, this is the best thing ever. And I think what this points to is individualized education, Mm -hmm. individualized opportunities for students. It highlighted a need that has been going on for a very long time. And it's an opportunity for us to say, how do we individualize experiences for students so they get exactly what they need rather than just kind of creating a one-size-fits-all for all? Before we close, I want to make sure we hear uh, from uh, a teacher, uh, once again, I want to play a clip from our story circle. And uh, this is Ayan Omar, former language arts teacher and currently equity director for St. Cloud Public Schools. So let's listen. I hear a lot of my colleagues, my teacher colleagues who just are throwing their hands up. Um, just I can't humanly catch this kid up. Where do I start? 
where should the emphasis be? And I'm seeing more and more classrooms with teachers who are just, kid has 53 missing assignments. They're just trying to find a way to equip this student with skills necessary to do better, not necessarily to get caught up. Um, if, If you're a couple of grade levels behind in reading, what skills do you need to face tomorrow? Let's take a look at using a calendar. Um, so that gives me hope that not not only are parents really evaluating their own approach to, ch- to their own children, but you have teachers who are just willing to say, you know what, this kid is not going to understand Shakespeare. This kid is going, I'm going to try to teach this kid how to make friends. Teachers have carried a heavy load. Um Brenda, what do you think uh, about uh, Ian's comments there? Yeah, I mean, it's been really tough on our teachers. They hated remote learning, at least the ones in Boston, I think is generally across the nation that they didn't like remote learning. They wanted to be in the classroom. That's been heavy. And then like Josh and Rachel both talked about um, the the crisis that we have with mental health issues as well, weighing on the teachers and they feel like they can't get to their subject matter because they're having to triage um, some of the some of the pain and the trauma that mm-hmm. kids have as we've returned back to school and so and some of them trained in that in child development and some of them not untrained and not trained well with uh, managing that so I think that what's really critical is that our teachers get the professional development and background in social emotional wellness and how to create classrooms that are sensitive to everyone's um, well-being and then taking care of their own self-care as well. Um, what I talked to a principal last week, a colleague, a, f- a friend of mine, she had 20 teachers out um, on a Friday. And I think that we're at that point where we're, we're it, you in know, one school or in one district, in one school, in one school, one school, 20 teachers were out. And I think that what we're seeing with our teachers is that the threshold that they used to have for kind of dealing with things was a lot greater before the pandemic, and now they're just triggered much sooner, and they just don't have the their their buckets are empty, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they just don't have that capacity to 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 manage the way that they used to manage, and they just need to take a day or two days. And so, I think as we think about the design of schools and our and the adults that are in them, servicing and working with our children and our families, we have to start thinking about how we use our time and how we build caring, healthy communities for everybody in the in the school building um, so that everybody can thrive. Okay. Uh, and before our time is up, I want to make sure we talk about tutoring and the role that tutoring can play here. I've talked about it on my talk show, something I care deeply about. Um, and Josh, what role does, does tutoring play here moving forward? Oh, yeah. So we know high dosage tutoring works very, very well. Uh, what we're still trying to figure out is how to get the kids to high dosage tutoring, right? And how to do it in an equitable way. Um, we see that a lot of far- parents, a lot of families um, of, of means have been using tutoring services um, before, since, the pandemic. before the pandemic. Yes. Um, and, and, and tutoring is good for everybody. Um, we also need to make sure that we're providing services and, and, and allowing people to, to come into those services equitably as well. How are we providing transportation services? How are we um, uh, educating parents and students about these opportunities and, and incentivizing these opportunities as well? And something that Rachel pointed out too is, is when we don't have substitutes or bus drivers, those, mm-hmm. those roles are being filled by 
reading specialists. They're being filled by tutors. So when a reading specialist is going to substitute a class or to, to fill in for a bus driver, um, which happens in rural Minnesota, um, we've seen a lot of that, of the principal being the bus driver and the principal. Um, if they're not doing what they were hired to do, what's going on? It, it, we're going to lose out on reading specialists. We're going to lose out on those, those tutoring services. So this is all interconnected. Uh, we got to fill shortages and substitute teaching and all of the other yeah. staff areas so that students can get those extra supports that they, that they need, including tutoring. Rachel, what would you say about tutoring? Um, I think that, yes, I mean, tutoring in the expanded sense, I think just from the perspective of uh, students with disabilities, extra injection mm-hmm. of services across the board, whether that's mental health supports, whether that's getting out into the community for employment readiness skills and independent living skills, whether that's um, uh, 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 an extra heavy dose of, uh, of learning Braille, learning sign language, assistive technology literacy is a huge area of need for our students. Reading, writing, uh, social skills, it's, they're all of these things we need to pour into our students now. And I think maybe, um, you know, we can't snap our fingers and, and make uh, all of these people that we need available, but I think that every family has uh, uh, has kind of a, an array of resources. Every community, schools exist inside communities, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, s- school districts are are used to taking care of everything themselves. Um, but there are resources in the community that where school districts live, where they're located. Uh, there are agencies and companies and uh, corporations and organizations. There are retired people. There are young people in school, in college, learning their professions. There are You have a whole world of people who could dive in. If we can make connections, if, if we can listen to parent voices and really be bold about creative collaborations that go outside the school district into the wider community, and, and I think we can build what students need much faster. And for our closing thought here, uh, Brenda, how long do you think it's going to take for us to really dig ourselves out of this hole? Earlier, you referenced that years before we really stabilize. Yeah, you know, I think the closest thing we have is Katrina and looking at like a major disaster and a whole public school system being... Hurricane Katrina. Yes, right, in New Orleans. And um, the, the struggles that they have and the, the, the research of looking at those kids and how they're still struggling, it's taken decade. It's going to take, take a long time. I would say 10 years. Of effort, and it's going to have to be intentional. Even with tutoring, you know, people think like that's a quick fix. You know, let's get them a tutor, and all of a sudden they're going to, you know, know these concepts and be able to thrive. No, this is a much more complex pickle that we are in right now, and it's going to take years. It's going to take intentionality, and it's going to be have to be down to the individual student family level um, if we're really going to see progress. And so that means smaller groups, smaller cohorts of students getting specific services that are designed specifically for them in their home language, matched to their disability, Mm. um, and understanding the cultural competence that's going to be needed with race and ethnicity. Um, And so all of that is going to have to be put together in terms of plans. And like I said, the only way I've ever seen it, my 30-plus years of education and moving systems is at that individual level. It's not going to be at a systems level. 
Our time is up for today. I want to thank uh, our guests for helping us all uh, get a better understanding of COVID learning loss. I appreciate the work that you're doing and, and what you've been able to share today. Thank you so much. Um, we've been talking again with Josh Crossan, uh, Executive Director for Ed Allies, a group that works to increase equity in Minnesota education, as well as Rachel Pearson, trainer and parent advocate for the Pacer Center which works with families of kids with special needs, and Brenda Caselius, former Minnesota Education Commissioner and longtime teacher and administrator. Thank you again. And to our audience, uh, mark your calendar for February of 2023. We'll be here before you know it, before you know it, when we hope to talk more about student mental health in that in focus. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Have a good day. 